Welcome to Facts Roundtable, a podcast dedicated to navigating life with food allergies across the lifespan. Presented in a welcoming format with interviews and open discussions, each episode will explore a specific topic, leaving you with the facts to know or use. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or healthcare providers for advice specific to your situation. Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawasasi, and I am your host for the Fact Roundtable podcast. I am a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog, and I am Fact's Vice President of Community Relations. Before we start, we want to highlight FACT's platinum sponsor, the National Peanut Board, and thank them for their years of continued support and partnership. Here are the latest on food allergy research from FACT's Medical Advisory Board Chair, Dr. Shazad Mustafa. Dr. Mustafa will explore tips for keeping loved ones safe, and he's going to explain the upcoming Quad AI meeting and why it is so essential for medical professionals to attend. Welcome back, Dr. Mustafa, to Facts Roundtable Podcast. We're absolutely delighted to have you joining us again today to bring everyone up to date on the world of research and what's going on at Quad AI. A lot of people don't know what the scientific meeting is, and so I think your help is going to open up a whole world of information for people. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Well, this is just fantastic. So not only are you a highly regarded board certified allergist, but you are actually one of us. You are a food allergy parent and you have that ability to take off your doctor coat and then step over into our parent and caregiver world. So can you please share with our listeners a little bit of your background? Sure. So I do allergy and clinical immunology in Rochester, New York. Uh, I've been in practice since 2009, so going on what, 14 years now. We have a thriving allergy practice. We have six full-time allergists. We take care of children and adults in all kind of disease states and allergy and immunology. My research interest is kind of twofold and very different. One is immune problems if you have cancer or if you're on chemotherapy. And then the other is considerations of quality of life when you have a food allergy. I think the quality of life implications are so, so meaningful. I have three kids, a 15-year-old daughter, 12-year-old son, and a 10-year-old son now. And my 10-year-old is allergic to peanuts, cashews, and pistachios. And it's really given me perspective. I'm a very evidence-based, scientific guy. I like to follow well-done research studies. But as a parent, sometimes it just doesn't translate. And, you know, when you're taking care of a loved one, you have to be very, very, I think, thoughtful about how to apply the science. So I try to do that when we take care of individuals. I say um, we do studies on populations, but we take care of individuals. So try to be thoughtful when we're taking care of folks. We talk a lot about shared decision-making these days, about how the same medical recommendation for two families or patients in the same scenario may not be right for both of them. People come from different places, different priorities. So that's how we try to manage and take care of folks in our practice. And I think, you know, being a a physician, a PA, an MP, it's, it's a privilege to meet people in these when they're looking for good health care. 
And I think it's so amazing, and I'm just so grateful, not that grateful that you have a child with food allergies, but grateful that you are part of our community in that sense, because I've watched people interact with you, and it's just so eye-opening for them to have that experience where you're giving them empathy and real true understanding when they're very frustrated or, or really struggling with something. And so I think that's just a gift you bring to everyone with that background. Thank you. That's very kind. It has certainly illuminated what it's like to be on the other side. And I think any healthcare provider would benefit from that. I mean, at some point, we're all touched by health, right? So we're, uh, we're on the consumer side, the patient side, whether it's ourselves, family members, loved ones, friends. That's certainly something to keep in mind when you're delivering healthcare. It, it's a very important role that, and words matter, messaging matters. You know, that's kind of some of the stuff we talk about with the quality of life stuff. And we're going to get into, you know, what's recent, what's new. We want to get it right. And we want to be coming from a place of good science, which is always changing. That is true, but it's exciting that the science is always changing. So now let's just dive right in and let's discuss the current state of research. Our listeners enjoy learning about what lies ahead, but also the research and understanding research really helps the families understand, like you mentioned earlier, the science and what could be out there, what their needs are, and then how to approach their doctor and to look at that long-term planning. So if you can just go ahead and bring us up to date. Yeah, so in the world of food allergy right now, there's a lot of discussion and a lot of press in the community on treatment for food allergy. Historically, it's been avoidance of allergens, treatment of accidental exposures appropriately, typically with epinephrine. There's been a lot of advancement recently, and we're going to get into that. But before we get into that, we still, you know me, and my focus remains on accurate diagnosis. And the food allergy world, allergists, pediatricians, primary care doctors, all of us continue to frequently overdiagnose and misdiagnose food allergies. So I'm excited about some new diagnostic tests. I think our listeners are familiar with skin testing for food allergies and specific IgE, the blood work. Some may call it RAS testing or immunocap. It's blood work for allergic antibodies. That's pretty commonplace. We've been doing it for years, but it's imperfect. Over the last few years, we've had more and more component testing. So our listeners should be aware of that. It's a little more accurate, maybe a little more easier to interpret in certain settings for certain foods, particularly for peanut, for certain tree nuts, for milk and egg. There's component testing. So that's become more mainstream and used. And we're moving into something called epitope testing, epitope mapping, which is even more accurate. This hasn't become fully commercially available just yet. But it is in certain states, and there's been new research and well-published papers on the utility of this type of testing to diagnose food allergy. So I think that's very, very exciting, and listeners should be aware of component testing and soon-to-be more widely available epitope testing. In the absence of the perfect test, and there's no perfect test, it's very important to rely on oral food challenges, which remains a big part of our practice. And anyone who's been diagnosed with a food allergy and it's not a slam dunk diagnosis should be aware and their allergist or the provider, whoever's taking care of their food allergy, really should be offering oral food challenges when the diagnosis is in question. Because at the end of the day, that's what we call the gold standard, Carolyn. That's the test that kind of the end all be all, the tiebreaker of all the tests. Can you go into a little more detail on the oral food challenge and what it is? Yeah. 
So, I mean, if you know someone's allergic to food, there's no reason to pursue an oral food challenge. I eat shrimp every time. In the last three times I've had it, within minutes I had hives and I got a skin test and it was very reactive and the blood work's elevated. So that's kind of a slam dunk. But, you know, life is not often black, white, up, down, left, right, right? It's shades of gray. And especially with kids who are getting rashes, lots of people get hives and rashes. And if there's any question in the testing, what we have, our skin testing and blood work, it's not a yes, no test. There's a lot of interpretation there. And a reactive skin test or detectable blood work does not mean you're allergic. There's many, many studies. So when you don't know that, you kind of break the tie with an oral food challenge. And this is typically done in an allergist's office. You come in and you're literally given the food in question in a very cautious thoughtful, like graded dosing. You start with a low dose and you see if they tolerate it and sequentially give them full, high, bigger doses until a full serving. So several doses are given. If someone's allergic to a food, they will have a reaction there and then the right hands will be treated appropriately. But if they tolerate the food, they're not allergic. And that kind of is a definitive diagnosis that you're not allergic, which is just as important. That's a good outcome. We want that. So that's the process oral food challenges, they can take a couple of hours and they remain underutilized by allergists. So I encourage our listeners with a diagnosis of food allergy to talk to their allergists. Would it be appropriate for them? Is there any utility if there's any question of diagnosis? Because it's a very, very, very helpful tool that we continue to underutilize for a myriad of reasons. Thank you so much. I just think it's really important for people to really understand it and to see it's nothing to be afraid of and great things come out of it. So now go right ahead and bring us up to date on the rest of the research and good things happening. Yeah. So we talked a little about diagnosis and now certainly treatment is very, very, very exciting. People have been doing off-label oral immunotherapy, OIT, for, for years it's been hard to kind of move the needle because everyone's done it different. It's been very individualized by practice. It's apples to oranges. We haven't had a very good systemic systematic studies. Then two and a half years ago or three years ago almost now, there was an FDA approved product for peanut called Palforzia, which was approved for peanut OIT. So that's been a step forward. That's obviously a uniform FDA approved product with standard dosing and protocols. So that's been around for about three years. It's approved for ages four to 17, Carolyn, that's important. And the uptake has been pretty underwhelming, actually. It, it's a big commitment. And the value proposition is it protects individuals from a reaction if they have an accidental exposure. That's generally, that's the goal. You're still avoiding peanut products. You're still carrying epinephrine. So it's not like it cures your peanut allergy when you're using this product typically. So what really has been exciting is last year, there's a study published in Lancet looking at the same process, but in younger kids, ages one to three. And in that young population, not only did you give them that same protection you did with the Palforzia product, but for many kids, you gave them a significant likelihood of outgrowing or remission, if you want to call it, of their peanut allergy, which as many of us know is typically a lifelong allergen. Now that is like, that's a game changer. So much so that our practice, this, this came out last summer, just started doing infant peanut oral immunotherapy um, in kids as young as nine months of age this month. And the value proposition, of course, protection from exposure is great. If you have a chance of actually 
getting rid of someone's peanut allergy that is otherwise very likely to be lifelong, that's a huge game changer. And oh, by the way, it's actually better tolerated in younger kids than older kids. Older kids often have a taste aversion. They don't like the taste of a food they're allergic to. Younger kids don't have that. So it's probably more effective, safer, with the possibility of what I say, facilitating resolution of an otherwise lifelong peanut allergy. Some are using the word remission, but super, super, super exciting about infant peanut oral immunotherapy. So for parents with newly diagnosed kids with peanut allergy, which typically happens around a year of age, this is something to absolutely ask your healthcare provider about. This is very exciting. It's hard for me to get my head around this. My son's 24, so we've been doing this for 22 years. And to hear this kind of information is thrilling. I mean, I never thought we'd be talking about this. Yeah, no. So, I mean, same. So, my son is 10, and this is not something that was an option when he was, you know, younger. So, it's very, very exciting. It's huge progress. And there's become, there's more and more buzz about you know, of course, it'd be nice to have an FDA approved product down to the younger age, and they're working on that. But you know, studies take time. So in the interim, I don't want to get into an ethical obligation. But you know, it's a huge thing to offer our families with newly diagnosed peanut allergy. So there have been more and more editorials in our journals about, you know, is this the time to really start doing this? The data is best for peanut. Potentially, the data is not there. But you know, it could be very similar outcomes with other food allergens also. And peanuts particularly important because it's lifelong often, right? And maybe tree nuts and sesame and other allergies that are typically lifelong. You can do this for egg and milk also, but most kids are going to outgrow that on their own anyway. So it's still helpful, I think, potentially for any food, but the huge benefit is for the ones that people won't typically outgrow. So in our practice, I can just speak for us, we're starting with peanut. We're going to get our feet wet. We're going to do this with the little ones, which we've started this month, which has started off going very well. And then we may broaden it to other foods too. And that may happen in the field as well over the coming years. This is amazing. This is so incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So that's the OIT. There's other forms of immunotherapy killer that people are working on, but this one's the furthest along. But the other thing I want to mention for treatment is a drug that we've been having experience with for 20 years now called omalizumab or anti-IgE, or the brand name is Zolaire, is very far along in studies for also treatment of food allergy. And this isn't just peanut or milk or egg. This would apply to any food. So Zolaire is anti-IgE. It's a monoclonal antibody that chews up IgE, which is your allergic antibody. And when you chew up your allergic antibody, it's harder to have an allergic reaction. So this is something that's very far along in studies and maybe FDA approved for food allergy management as early as next year. Also very, very exciting. Now, the difference here is I don't think it'll have any utility in potentially helping someone outgrow an allergy, like what I just mentioned in the infant OIT for peanut. It would just be more of a protection. So, you know, these are different things, very different approaches, but again, huge advancements in our field, which I'm very, very excited about. And Zolaire is something we've been using for asthma since 2003. It's approved for chronic hives. It's approved for sinusitis and nasal polyps. So there are kids who have, of course, asthma and food allergy where we're kind of already using it in this setting a little bit. But again, look out for it. We're hoping maybe as early as 2024, this may have an FDA-approved indication for food allergy too. So again, for the listeners, 
something to talk to your allergist about, about is there a role for omalizumab or Zolaire in the management of you know, your child's allergic conditions or even potentially an adult's allergic conditions? Are there any age specifications for it, like children, adults, all ages? Yeah, so I mean, certainly that the FDA determines age ranges and stuff. Right now for the peanut OIT, the FDA approved product is 4 to 17. I know the studies for omalizumab or Zolaire, the management of food allergy, I think go down to age one. So I, can't, I certainly can't speak to where it'll be approved. Right now for asthma, it's approved six and up, but we certainly think it's a safe drug even in younger ages. So I think it's being studied down to age one. That's another incredible thing on the horizon. This is great. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a really, really exciting time to be an allergy. There's been so many advancements and so many things we take care of. Asthma, drug allergy, food allergies, really, really exciting right now. So it's a fun time to be doing what we do. I like that you have that attitude toward it. This is very good. (laughs) Now, do you have other food allergy news for us? So I think those are what a lot of people are talking about. Some of the diagnostics, the emphasis on food challenges remains the same and certainly treatment. I think the other thing that's getting a lot of press right now is this new law, unfortunately, the FASTER Act, which you're familiar with, right, about labeling for sesame, which is now recognized as a top nine food allergen. And it's unfortunately been received in a very wonky way in the community, something I don't think many of us foresaw. I certainly did it. It now requires labeling sesame as a food allergen on labels. And apparently due to manufacturing or whatnot, many companies are trying to work their way around it. You may know better than I do, Carolyn, but they're actually putting sesame into products that they didn't previously have sesame in, which is the absolute opposite of the goal here, which is certainly affecting our families, uh, individuals with sesame allergy. So that's had a lot of press. I'm really hoping that it is on the radar in Congress for whatever that's worth. This was not the goal of the act. It was just to add one more, you know, requirement to label foods that contain sesame. So I think due to manufacturing techniques or what have you, some of these companies are being a little bit, you know, unscrupulous in how they're going about it. So that's getting a lot of press, more to come, but something to be aware of, especially if you know some of this uh, food allergy to sesame seeds. Oh, yeah. My son is allergic to sesame. And I actually had called him like literally December 31st. And I just said, anything you buy now or consume, you must double check. Had a sneaky suspicion something like that might happen. That happened before with peanut. I don't know if you remember Keebler had added some peanut flour into some products. And there were some things with Hostess as well. And eventually it got straightened out. But It is important, I think, for anyone with a sesame allergy to not assume that the normal products they purchase are the same. They really do need to stop and reread. And in terms of the advocacy, all of the advocacy groups, including FACT, have been reaching out to the proper authorities, and there have been letters and a lot of information going back out saying, okay, wait a minute, we need to you know discuss this, and there are some better solutions here. But really, the big key is I think anyone with a sesame allergy, just don't assume whatever you buy is safe. Double read the label, double check it. 100% agree. And I'm the eternal optimist. You know me. I do think it'll get ironed out eventually. But absolutely, right now, it's very, very important. Even if foods you have no reason to believe may contain sesame, like a hamburger bun, check the labels. 
So we're going to pivot for just a minute here and turn our attention to life with food allergies. What are your three must-dos for every food allergy parent and their caregivers? If you could only take three actions to keep yourself safe, what would be your three? Let's say, let's start by getting your diagnosis right, right? Knowledge is power. You don't want to be over avoiding things you're not allergic to, and you certainly want to be, you want to be aware of the things you are allergic to. So I encourage everyone, I'm biased, I know, but to meet with a board certified allergist to get the diagnosis right. That's step one, because we continue to falter there. Step two is certainly avoid your food allergens. Always read labels. That sounds simple. But there is a very large proportion of individuals with food allergies who continue to not read labels. And there is some scary, scary data, research reports on certain age groups being quite, what I would say, foolish, taking risks, kind of almost knowingly about potentially consuming food allergens. Uh, we know that, you know, that age group, those the teenagers, young adults where our frontal lobes haven't yet quite, quite filled in, um, take some maybe not the, the smartest steps. So Get your diagnosis right. Of course, read labels and avoid your food allergens consistently. And the most important is accidents happen. 15% of individuals will have an exposure to a food allergen per year. So one out of six. It happens. It's normal. Life happens. We don't live in bubbles. So treat accidental exposures appropriately. And I am a huge proponent of using epinephrine. Antihistamines are not indicated or effective, nor do they work fast enough to treat a significant, serious, life-threatening allergic reaction. You do not need to be on death's door to use epinephrine. You do not need to be struggling for breath. You do not need to have significant swelling. I hear so often, I didn't use it because it wasn't so bad. But if you have an exposure to an allergen, epinephrine early is absolutely, I think, in my opinion, the right thing to do in the vast majority of cases. Sure, sometimes with some minor itching or minor rash, an antihistamine may do the trick. But when you're hemming and hawing, when in doubt, when there's any question, go to Epi. And this is where I'll kind of bring it back to my son, my son's emergency action plan for school, his management of food allergy, does not even list an antihistamine. And that's not right for everyone. I think it's fine to list an antihistamine. I'm just using this as an example of how I believe in epinephrine. It really is the go-to. If you think my son has had an allergic exposure exposure to an allergen, I want you to use epinephrine up front. No hemming or hawing with antihistamines. There's very little, if any, downside to using epinephrine. You can use epinephrine if you didn't need to, and it's okay. It's a shot of adrenaline. The problem is if you needed it and you don't use it, and that's when bad things happen. Excellent advice. And I have to share with you, my allergist had said once to my kids, using the antihistamine is like taking a Dixie cup of water and throwing it on a burning building when the hose, the fire hose is right next to you. And that really sunk into them. Absolutely. I mean, antihistamines do a great job of blocking what? Histamines. We know that. But when you're having an allergic reaction, there's many more chemicals at play that an antihistamine will never affect. And epinephrine will do all of that. And allergic reactions happen fast. They happen in minutes, within 20 minutes. Antihistamines actually don't work that fast. They take almost an hour to really, really work. Epinephrine works in seconds. So there's so many reasons why uh, epinephrine is really the way to go. So I think that's a huge take-home point, something we stress for all our families. Thank you so much. Excellent sage advice. 
So now we're going to turn our attention to Quad AI, which is the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. And every year they host this scientific annual meeting. And most of us out there in the food allergy world as parents, caregivers, patients, don't really know what this meeting is and what happens behind the scenes. And most of all, like why it's so important to people like you. So, yeah. So, I mean, our field in allergy really has a few very big conferences for continuing medical education from physicians, physicians assistants, nurse practitioners, allied health staff, nurses, anyone who's in healthcare, really. We have several big conferences a year. And the Quad AI, the American Academy of Asthma, Allergy, Immunology, is one of several. It's held typically in February or March. This year it's in San Antonio, so nice warm weather up, up in Rochester. It's cold right now. And why it's so important is because of the fun stuff we just talked about. This is where the research is presented that kind of moves our field forward. So all the stuff I talked about gets presented here. So it has multiple just fantastic avenues. Learning is great. It's great, great learning, basic science learning, clinical learning, clinical research is presented here. So the learning is great. There's big studies presented. There's small projects presented. There's an incredible amount of information that we can take away. But just as importantly as the learning, it's an amazing opportunity for networking and collaboration and getting to see friends from all over the country in person. This is the second meeting now since the COVID pandemic. It was canceled for a few years, right? Not surprisingly. And last year was very different. Last year, COVID was very different than this year. So it's really starting to kind of get back with our colleagues, collaborate, bounce ideas off of each other. It's amazing what a conversation where it will lead, right? To your next research project. And it's enjoyable. It's invigorating. I think it's inspiring. And most of us who attend these big meetings come back quite energized, inspired to do new things, to implement things in our practice, to move the needle forward. So I think there's networking, there's collaboration, there's certainly learning. It's an incredible amount of information at this meeting. It's a four-day meeting. There's multiple sessions going on all day. So it's fantastic. I think this year has over 3,000 folks attending in person, ish, something like that. So I very much look forward to it every year. We're lucky enough to usually present some research every year and be part of some of the talks, but it's just a great experience. And all of these continuing medical education meetings, there's such such a fun way. You know, I I care with my kids that I continue to go to school and learn. If if your healthcare provider is not learning in some way, they're just falling behind the times. This is your school. So now, is there anything in particular that you're expecting to see there or anything you're looking forward to specifically? Yeah. So like I said, there's an incredible amount of sessions covering all subject areas. This year's meeting, some of the bigger talks are called plenary sessions. Some of the plenary topics this year are food allergy. President of the Quad AI has an interest in drug allergy. So there's a plenary on drug allergy. There's a plenary on atopic dermatitis, eczema. And there's also a plenary on vaccines. And it's, I think it's got a little bit of a provocative title from when I looked at the program. I think it's something like the vaccine, the science versus the anti-science. And it's Dr. Peter Hotez. If you guys don't know Peter Hotez, he is an incredible human, an incredible speaker, an engaging, passionate speaker. He's actually quite active on uh, social media and Twitter. He's down in Baylor, I think. And Peter Hotez will be giving the plenary on vaccine science and anti-science. And, you know, there is no shortage of misinformation in this world. It's always been there. 
but it's really taken on a beast of its own in the last couple of years. And I think this applies to really everything. So it's just as important that the science we talk about, but we also talk about the misinformation and the anti-science, because it's really a huge barrier to appropriate healthcare management these days. So those are exciting plenary sessions. I'm looking forward to those. I certainly look forward to the sessions I get to speak at. Um, it's such a privilege to present at this meeting. And I love just wandering the, the hall with poster presentations, people's research projects, early re results. It's a great opportunity for chatting, for brainstorming ideas and research. It's how things change over time. This is like Disneyland <laughs> if you're a healthcare provider, right? In the world of allergy, it is overwhelming. It, there's a lot happening. There's multiple sessions and multiple rooms at the same time. It, it can be overwhelming, but yes, it's really, really exciting. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with listeners. And I hate to say it, but we're at the end of our time together. It just went so fast. So before we end, is there anything you want listeners to hear from you? I mean, I think the message remains the same. It's an exciting time in our field. And, you know, research is always happening. The needle is always being moved. And, you know, it happens at meetings at like the Quad AI, which is coming up in two weeks. But then it comes right back to, honestly, the, the, the office, the clinic. So be advocates, advocate for your healthcare, speak to your healthcare providers about, you know, if we're talking about food allergy, these new tests, these new therapies, do they apply to you? Do they not? But be aware, always advocate. It's a very, very exciting time. And, you know, the only constant is change. So with that, thank you so much for having me. It's always fun to hang out and uh, be part of this community. Well, thank you for ending our conversation with very wise words and wisdom. And as always, we thank you 300% for all that you do for the community and you helping and supporting FACT. We all at FACT very much appreciate you. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Before we say goodbye today, we just want to highlight one more time FACT's platinum sponsor, the National Peanut Board. And we would like to thank them for their years of continued support and partnership. Thank you for listening to Facts Roundtable Podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, leave a review, and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Have a great day and always be kind to one another. <laughs>